Well, if you turn in your Bibles now to the book of John, we look into the book of John, chapter 15, for our scripture reading, and we'll be reading from verses 9 through 13 in the book of John, chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 13. Very important passage of abiding in Christ and the Lord Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 15. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This morning, we're so very blessed to have uh, Pastor John Lepron. He is the pastor, the senior pastor of East Ridge Baptist Church since uh, September of 2007. He's a graduate of the Master's College, a graduate of the Master's Seminary, and now he's in his doctoral work there in expository preaching at the Master's Seminary. And uh, I am, um, I am uh, happy because uh, I have always been encouraged when I hear of one who preaches the word of God and goes into a church as he as he has and preaches the word of God and the, and the Lord works within the hearts of the people and their desire to be more biblical and to turn a ship that was going the wrong way and to steer it in the right direction all because of the power of the word. And so, John, I invite you to come up here. Let's give him a warm welcome as he opens the word. Well, I hope it was all the power of the word and not just me <laughs> chasing the people away. So might have been a little of both. Hopefully a lot more of the, of the word. Keep your, I hope you kept your Bibles open there to John 15. That's a passage that we're going to be looking at. It's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to see so many new faces. Uh, it's been a while since I've been here. Uh, I was here just before James' ordination, right? So last and it's been a year. Wow. Reverend... Barbalitos for a year. Do you make people call you Reverend now? I'm going to make my grandkids call me Doctor when I get my doctorate. I'll be Doctor Papa. Appreciate Jay or uh, uh, Joe reading this uh, passage this morning. Let me start out by saying I am by no means an expert in art appreciation. My taste in art runs somewhere between Thomas Kincaid and dogs playing poker. <laughs> My favorite artist is an artist by the name of Bev Doodlittle. And Bev Doodlittle paints what is known as camouflage art. Most of her art is scenery. It's uh, nature scenes. It's mountains. It's trees. Uh, there's usually wildlife in it. Horses or bears or, or uh, eagles or things like that. Often Native Americans in the paintings as well. My favorite Bev Doolittle painting is titled, The Forest Has Eyes. 
And in that painting, you see a trapper descending from the mountain with his pack mule in tow, laden with the, the pelts from that year's or that season's catch. He's descending out of the timber line, down a dry creek bed, and, and the trees are in the background, and it's majestic and beautiful just in that. But as you look at the painting, you notice that there are large faces in the trees and in the rocks looking at the man, and they're only distinguishable by shades of light and dark within the branches and the leaves or the rocks and the ground. There are 13 faces in all. Some are obvious at first. Some are not so obvious. Some take some study. And some you can't find unless you're intently looking for them and examining really every inch of the painting until you find them. Each face in and of itself is a masterpiece. You could frame each one of those by themselves and it would be spectacular. Such is the study of the love of Christ. It's like that painting. It's a beautiful subject in and of itself, but there are so many facets of it, and each one of those facets, each one of those faces of the love of Jesus is a masterpiece in and of itself. Well, there's no way that we could possibly, in the time that I have, talk about all the facets, all the faces of the love of Jesus. So this morning, if you'll allow me, I'm going to paint with broad strokes. I'm going to leave the intricate details to your own personal viewing. To fully explore the love of Christ is a spiritual spelunker's dream come true. It would take us beyond a lifetime to follow all the crevices that reveal how loving Jesus Christ is. In the mid-1800s, Philip Bliss attended an evangelistic meeting in which they sang the song, Oh, How I Love Jesus, several times. Bliss thought, have I not been singing enough about my poor love for Jesus? Shall I not rather sing of His great love for me? With that thought, Philip Bliss wrote these words, I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of His love in the book He has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. Our text tells us that Jesus loves us in the same way that the Father loves Him. And then He tells us that we're to love others in the same way that He loves us. As we examine the text, we'll see three features of the love of Jesus. We'll begin with defining the love of Jesus. We'll move from that into abiding in the love of Jesus. And then we'll end with manifesting the love of Jesus. But before we jump into defining the love of Jesus, we need to see the context of John chapter 15. This monologue here in John chapter 15 falls in a greater conversation that began in chapter 13, verse 8, and continues all the way through chapter 17, verse 26. In chapter 12, we see the magnificent, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on that beginning of Passion Week. He is there, the parade of people shouting Hosanna and singing praises to Him, waving the palm branches, throwing their garments on the ground in front of Him. Later in that same chapter, we see the magnitude of the rejection of Jesus by and large by the people. In chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. In chapters 13 and 14, Jesus begins answering the disciples' questions. Where are you going? Why can't I follow? How will we know how to get there? Why won't you reveal yourself to the world at this time? 
In chapter 15 and chapter 16, we have what's called the farewell discourse. In chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. In chapter 18, he'll be arrested. The events of chapter 13 through chapter 17 all take place in one evening. They all take place at the same time. They begin in the upper room where they have the Last Supper and they continue all the way through into the garden where Jesus will be arrested. So what we have in chapter 15 is in the middle of this farewell to the disciples. Jesus knows He has but a few hours left with them. And he will be arrested. He'll no longer have an opportunity to speak to them one-on-one before he's crucified. So these are, in essence, the last words that Jesus has to his disciples before he dies. These are the eleventh hour instructions. The things they need to know before he goes. As part of the final instructions, he speaks of love. We'll begin with defining the love of Jesus there in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. If we're going to accurately define the love of Jesus, we have to use the correct dictionary. We have to use God's dictionary. The word love, as we all know, have been hijacked by Hollywood terrorists and have been redefined and exploited and cheapened until it's no different than a tawdry one-night stand. Love, according to popular culture, according to the world, according to Hollywood, is cheap, it's disposable. It means nothing, it's superficial. People fall in and out of love as easily as changing the channel on their television. This defective definition of love has had a devastating impact on our current generation. Not only regarding their relationships with one another, but particularly with their relationship with God. The self-centered definition of love has turned this generation into consumers rather than manufacturers. We consume love instead of producing love. Love becomes all about me. We're takers rather than givers. How can that person help me? How do they make me feel? What's in it for me? This transitory nature of love that's being practiced today makes lifetime commitments in the same realm as fairy tale endings. They lived happily ever after? Are you kidding me? That's just not realistic. As more and more people define their love relationship with God the way they, by what they can get out of it, it's no surprise that when trouble happens in people's lives that they walk away from God. And they say things like, well, I tried Christianity. It didn't work for me. I tried religion. But it wasn't for me. You can see how this definition has made its way into the churches. Call it what you want. Prosperity gospel, health and wealth gospel, name it and claim it, abundant life, your best life now. No matter how you slice it, it's a cheap love. What's in it for me? If it's not in it for me, it's not good enough. Fortunately, God doesn't operate according to man's ever-changing definitions. He uses his own definition, the correct definition. Jesus defined His love for us this way, just as the Father has loved me. How the Father loves the Son is crucial. How the Father loves the Son. How, does it, how, how is that? Well, to answer the question, let's look at three aspects. Number one, the love of God for the Son is untainted. 
The love of God for the Son is untainted. 1 John 4, 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The very character of God is love. And since God is perfect, therefore the love with which He loves His Son is perfect love. It is untainted love. Did you realize that love is not a created thing? In the beginning, God did not say, let there be love. There was love because there is God. It is unspoiled love. We are only able to love because God is. And He is love. If there is no God, if God is not love, we can't love anyway. Because the very nature of God is love, we can therefore say that the love that God has for His Son is unspoiled. It is uncorrupted. It is unstained. It is never tainted by selfishness. God never loves His Son in a way that says, what's in it for me? He's never motivated by unrighteous desires. His love is always perfectly pure love. Untainted love. Secondly, the love of God for the Son is generous. It's generous. Look over in chapter 17. Keep your fingers there in 15. We'll be back. Look over in chapter 17. This is in what is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays. Look at verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. God's love for the Son is generous in that He gave the Son, the Father gave the Son, us. If you're a believer, you were a gift from God the Father to God the Son. He gave Him us. Look down at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them so that we may be one, so that uh, they may be one just as we are. God also gave Him glory. He didn't just give them us, He gave Him glory. You see them both mentioned there in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. God has given the Son both us and glory. And then Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11 says this, For this reason also God highly exalted Him, that's Christ, and bestowed upon Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gave Him a name that will be worshipped. The Father in His generosity to the Son said, I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you glory. I'm going to give you a name. And we can go on through back through John where He has given Him all authority. God is constantly giving the Son good gifts. He's giving Him a name that will be worshipped. Every knee will bow. The love that God has for the Son is untainted. The love that God has for the Son is generous. And third, the love that God has for the Son is permanent. It is permanent. If you're still there in John chapter 17, look again at verse 24. Look at the end. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. It was, it's permanent. He has always loved the Son. Before anything, He's loved the Son. And from eternity past through eternity future. 
Psalm 103 verse 17 says, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. That means it's from eternity past to eternity future. That's the love of Christ, or the love of God rather, for His Son Jesus Christ. God's love is not fickle. It's not arbitrary. It's not like milk that expires. It's good one day and the next day it's sour. God doesn't love one day and the next day not love anymore. His love doesn't expire. It's enduring. It lasts as long as He lasts because He is love. The love of God for the Son is untainted love. It's generous love. It's permanent love. Back in John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me... I have also loved you. Jesus says, this is how I love you. How the Son loves us. Just like the Father loves Him, He says, that's the way I love you. His love for us is untainted. It is not motivated by our innate goodness. God does not look at us and say, you know what? They are so cool... I think I'll love them. Look at how righteous James is. I mean, can anybody have such a cool beard? (laughs) Gotta love that guy. It's never based on anything like that. It's never based on selfish motives. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, you know what, I could really use that person. You know what I need? I need an engineer. Let me find an engineer to love. He doesn't do that. Rather, His love for us is motivated by the will of the Father. It is God the Father's will that He love us, that whom He has given, and He does. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus said, I promise to love you and take care of you, because that's what my Father would have me do. It's untainted love. Secondly, His love for us is generous. He gave us His glory. We already looked at John 17, 22. The glory which you have given me, Jesus said, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are. He's preparing a room for us. John 14, verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'm preparing a place for you. I want to give you a home in heaven, in my Father's house. His love for us is permanent. He chose us from the beginning of the world. Ephesians 1, 4-6. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He chose us. His love for us is permanent. It was before the foundation of the world. And it will last on into eternity. 
He said, we read that in John 14, 3. I'm going to prepare a place that where I am, there you may be. I want you with me. His love for us is not fickle. Jesus doesn't fall in and out of love with us. Romans 8, uh, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer to all those rhetorical questions is no. How about uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not fickle. Jesus doesn't fall in and out of love with us. He doesn't look at you and see the stupid thing that you did and say, I don't love you anymore. He doesn't do that. Nothing separates us from the love of God. From the love of Christ. It's an eternal love. It's a permanent love. The love that the Son shows for us is untainted. It's generous. It's permanent. There's a fourth way. Jesus shows us love in the way that God the Father did not show Him. His love for us is sacrificial. Sacrificial. Yes, it was a sacrifice for God the Father to send His Son to die. But God did not need to die for the Son in order to show His love. But that's exactly why Jesus died for us, was to show us His love. Jesus showed us His love by dying on a cross for our sin. Romans 8, or 5, 8. But God demonstrated His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We say that verse a lot. You've probably heard that verse many times. So much so that probably at times it just bounces off the brain without really paying attention to that. Do you know what that's saying? While we were yet sinners, while we were the most vile, ungodly, wicked people, Jesus Christ said, yeah, I'll die for that. I'll die for Him. I'll die for her to show my love. The one that hates me, yes, I'll die for them. Oh, for a good man, some might die. For a righteous man, some would die. But God died for us while we were yet sinners. His love for us is self-sacrificing. 1 John three sixteen. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. We ought to lay down our life for the brethren. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The love that Jesus has for us is sacrificial love. It's self-giving love. It's self-sacrificing love. He gave us His life. He also gave us His righteousness. It wasn't enough just to give His life. There had to be a change. And He gave us His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, that's God, made Him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What a self-sacrificing love. He said, I'll take on their coat of sin and I'll take my coat of righteousness and put it on them. It's an amazing thought. It's a humbling thought. That the love that Jesus has for you and me is modeled after the love that His Father has for Him. In the same way that the Father loves me, that's the way I love you. It's incredible when you think about it. The Son loves us in the way the Father loves Him. It's untainted by man's depravity. It's love that is generous. It's love that's permanent. It's love that's sacrificial. The love that finds its source in the very nature of God the Father is lavished on us through the Son. The love that unites the Father with the Son is the same love that unites us to the Son. Our frailties of affection, our own limitations in love, makes grasping such a concept difficult. We need supernatural help to understand this love of Jesus for us. Which is why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled uh, with all the fullness of God. Paul said to the Ephesians, listen, And I'm praying for you to have supernatural understanding of the love of Christ for you because it's so broad, it's so vast, it's so complete, it's so generous, it's so permanent, it's so unspoiled that we cannot know it without His help. Without experiencing that love firsthand and recognizing what He did for you, you can't even begin to fathom what it means to have the love of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing love. Back in John 15, verse 9. After defining love, Jesus tells disciples to abide in love. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Abide is a key word in this chapter. It's used ten times. In this chapter, nine times before we get to verse 7. Or before verse 9. Seven times before we get to verse 9. I'll get my numbers right. Look at verses 4 through 7. Just give us a little hint here. He says, Abide in me as I, uh, uh, abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them in the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. You see the word used over and over and over again. Uh, And this abiding needs to be, to stay in, to continue in, to remain in. And he uses the illustration, you cut off a branch from the vine and you lay it aside, it's going to to dry up and die. And it's good for nothing anymore to be thrown in the fire. 
You must abide in me. You must remain in me. You're the branch. God's the vine. You must abide, must remain constant in the vine. Abide in my love. This term here, verse verse 9, abide in my love. In the, in the original Greek, it, in, the, in the structure of the language, is emphasizing the character of the love. It literally says, the love that is mine. Abide in the love that is mine. This is not merely Christ's love for man or man's love for Christ. It's love that perfectly res- corresponds with the being of Christ, with the character of Christ. You abide in my love. You abide in the love that is mine. The love like I love. You stay in that love. You remain in that kind of a love. Arthur Pink explains it like this. To abide in His love then is to be occupied with it. To continue upon it. To be persuaded that nothing shall ever be able to separate us from it. Dwelling on our poor, fluctuating love for Him will make us miserable. But having a heart fixed upon His wondrous love, that love which passeth knowledge, will fill us with praise and thanksgiving. Focus on the love that Jesus has for us. That's what He's saying. You ever feel your heart, your love for Christ waning? You can all day long for a week say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, and it will raise your level of love a minuscule amount. But if you spend that same week saying, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, and remembering all the the ways and, and the means that Jesus went through to show His love for you, your love for Christ will grow tremendously. Abiding in the love of Christ is reminding ourselves how He loves us. What He did for us. So how do I abide in the love of Christ? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus here is not speaking of retaining our salvation through obedience. He is not saying if you'll just obey, then uh, then, uh, you can show you that you love me. Rather, though God's love for us is not dependent upon our our, our merits, sweet fellowship with God is dependent upon our obedience. When we obey His commands, we abide in His love and enjoy that relationship. If there were a husband and wife, and the, and the husband loved his wife with a pure, untainted, unselfish love. He was constantly giving, he was sacrificial in his love. He loved his wife the way Christ loved the church. But she did not love her husband that way. She did not respond to the kindness that he showed. He didn't, she didn't respond uh, with the love that he showed. She always wanted something else. She wanted her husband's love plus something in order to be happy. Their marriage would be miserable ultimately. But suppose for a moment that she then loves her husband in the same way that he loves her. Now all of a sudden the marriage is sweet and wonderful. That's what Jesus is saying. 
I love you with a pure, undefiled, permanent, self-sacrificing love. If you will obey me, you'll show me your love in the same way. Then we can have sweet fellowship together. His love for us doesn't change. It's our love for Him that must change. We are are the bride of Christ. We must dwell in Christ and have that sweet relationship by returning to Him the same love that He has shown us. That's the point of verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, may be made full. The love of Jesus is intended to be enjoyed. He does not intend the Christian life to be some some sad, somber, boring thing. You've met those people. I've met those people. I have them in my church whose motto is, I'd rather be a Christian than happy. You see them coming and immediately start praying for the rapture. You ask them how they're doing, and an hour later, you're really sorry you asked. That is not what Jesus wants us to have. He intends for us to have joy. These things I have spoken to you, here's your purpose clause, I underlined so that in your Bible, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I want you to enjoy your Christian life. That comes about through loving me enough, Jesus would say, to obey me. And when you do that, it's wonderful. Jesus desire for us to Jesus is desires for us to have joy, not joy defined by the world, but joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances, but rather joy in the face of our circumstances because we have a right loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to, it'll just be depressing. How many are upside down in your home loan? You know what? So what? It's not great, I understand that. But if you're abiding in the love of Christ and your home goes away, it goes away. It doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change your joy. It shouldn't. It would only do that if your joy is wrapped up in what you possess, rather than who possesses you. Abiding in His love through obedience to His command makes it possible to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Having to find love, and then telling us to abide in that love, Jesus now tells us how to manifest the love. So manifesting the love of Jesus. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. Well, he said in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll love me, you'll abide in my love. And then he says here, so there's no uncertainty in verse 12, this is my commandment. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Now the love that Jesus has for us is the same love that the Father has for Him. And then He tells us, and I want you to love others the same way I love you. With an untainted love. With a generous love. With a permanent love. 
with a self-sacrificing love. He gives a supreme example there in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, and one lays down his life for his friends. Listen, if we're going to love one another the way Christ loves us, then our love for them is not based on their innate goodness. Our love for them is not based on what they do for us. Our love is based on the character of Christ. If we're going to love others the way Christ loves us, our love for them is generous. It's not self-seeking. It's not even self-protecting. Our love for them is permanent. We don't fall in and out of love. Husbands and wives don't fall in and out of love when they love their spouse the way Christ loves them. They don't fall in and out of love with their children when they love their children the way that Christ loves them. They don't fall in and out of love with brothers and sisters in Christ when they love the way Christ loves them because it's a permanent love. And it is a self-sacrificing love. It gives of self to show that love. If necessary, it puts their lives on the line to show that love for one another. Greater love has no one than this. That he lays down his life for a friend. Jesus is speaking literally here. But you can also take it in a figurative sense that I'm going to spend my life to show my love for others. Manifesting the love of Jesus is not an option for the Christian. It is a command. And failure to obey this command is forfeiture of the joy of the Lord. He said, I, can't, I, I tell you this so that you can have joy. So if we fail to love others the way Jesus tells us to love them, the same way He loves us, the same way that God the Father loves Him, then we are consciously forfeiting the joy of the Lord. You want to have joy in Christ? You want to enjoy your Christianity? Love others the way Christ loves you. And remind yourself on a regular basis what that looks like. How does Jesus love me? This is the heart of the gospel. By giving ourselves as living sacrifices in service to Christ. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We see it over and over in Scripture. This is becoming Christ-like, and it starts with a heart of love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the masterpiece of love, for the work of art that Your love is for us. Father, may You be glorified to move in the hearts of Your people that we would be men and women who love others the way you love us. Father, it is an amazing thing to love, to be loved with the same love that the Father loves you. Lord, may you strengthen our hearts to be obedient, to experience the joy of the Lord. May you receive all the honor and glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.